Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness and for your word, for your love and your grace and your mercy and your, your sovereign control over history, over prophecy, over the events of, of this earth and the events of our lives. And Lord, it is so, so relevant for our lives today. And so, Lord, we just want to hear from you. Please have your way with us today. Guide us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're in our house on a lovely, calm spring Saturday morning, you're chilling, right? If you would be in our house on a sm spring Saturday morning, we'll say it's about 9 a.m., some of you in our house are awake, um, and it's a calm, chilled morning, and then a shriek is heard throughout the house. Some would say throughout the neighborhood, but for our purposes, we'll say throughout the house. And it goes something like this, a magnolia warbler has been sighted outside the bedroom window. And there's a flurry of traffic moving to the bedroom. Some, for a better angle, will move to the, the other room next to it. Some will try to look out the kitchen, but everyone's face will be plastered against the window looking for the magnolia warbler. Some will have binoculars, some will not. And one, probably, two, but mostly one, will describe for the rest of us exactly where the magnolia warbler is located. And it goes something like this. Next to that tree. <laughs> Which tree? The one with the leaves kind of going this way. There's several of those. Well, you see that, and, there, and then we get... Then we get it gets better. You see that one coming out of the creek at an angle like this way? It's got like gray bark on it. Oh, yeah, I see that one. Yeah, it's, it kind of crisscrosses with that, right? And that's how it goes, right? Sooner or later, we all see the magnolia warbler, sort of, okay? Well, today can feel like that, okay? I'm going to describe a lot of tree branches, if you will. And so if there were ever time to literally catch the forest for the trees, it's today, okay? We're going to read some history. And as soon as I say read some history, raise your hand if that excites you. All right, that's about, okay. Okay, so if you're a, let's say you're a, uh, in school now, or you were in the school sometime in the past, raise your hand if history is like your favorite subject. It's honest. It's reasonable. It's honest. Okay. So if history is not your favorite subject, can I, I'm not going to ask for like, I'm not going to interview everybody because there's too many of you that history is not your favorite subject, including me, right? When I was in school. Now I love it. When I was in school, history was not my favorite subject, really probably because I had a hard time making a connection with what has that got to do with me today? Is that fair? 
If you don't like history, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maybe speculate that it's because you have a hard time making the connection with how is that relevant to me today, okay? So I want to I take us, if you're there, if you love history, great, just hang on while I bring the rest of them up to your level, okay? If you don't like history or you didn't like history, I think there's probably a need for a reminder that this is hugely, I can't tell you how emphatically important this is for our lives today. Number one, we learn about human nature. People always fight one another. Number two, we learn that God has prophesied in the past things that have already happened and things that are yet to happen. Fair enough? And if God has given us some information of something that was going to happen in the future, and yet we're farther down on the timeline and we can read it as history. We've talked about this a little bit. We can read it as history. What does that tell us about God? Does God know the future? Yeah. What does it tell us about God in those things that have yet to happen? Can we trust Him? Yeah. How can we trust Him? Can we trust Him like, yeah, I think it's going to be kind of like maybe reading clouds and ink blots and, and you know communicating with whales? Is it going to be like that? No, it's going to be super specific. And so what I want you to catch today is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the forest for the trees. I'm going to start with the big picture, fair enough, and kind of work our way into the particulars. But as we do this, as we move into the particulars, describing, if you will, the tree branches, I want us to not kind of be overwhelmed by that. I want us to kind of flow with it. But even if you don't catch all the particulars of that, that's okay. I've read and listened enough this week that I'm hopeful, hopefully we can flow through it. But if you don't get all the details, that's okay. But what I want you to capture and appreciate is how specific God is. God is extremely specific. Okay? Fair enough? So, Anybody remember our friend? We love this guy. We love this guy. This guy, you can clap for this guy. We gave it up for everybody else. We might as well get up for this guy. This is the uh, image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. I think of this as sort of the, the, the framework for biblical prophecy, in a sense. This is from, ne from Daniel chapter 2. <clears throat> we read this a, a little while ago. And Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and Daniel interpreted it. And basically, the dream was given during the reign of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who was uh, the king of the Babylonian Empire. And so Daniel says, hey, you're like a head of gold, and after you is going to come uh, a kingdom uh, that's like silver, and that's going to be the Medo-Persian Empire. And now at the writing of Daniel chapter 11, we're in this Medo-Persian Empire, just as Daniel predicted. And he said, after you comes uh, another empire that's going to be the Grecian Empire. And then ultimately, uh, that empire is going to break apart a little bit. We're going to talk about that today. And then after that comes the Roman Empire, represented by two legs. And after that... Um, and for us, this is yet, so all that's happened, but as of, as, as of today, what is yet future 
is the feet with ten toes. Ten toes represents, uh, biblically, sort of a revived Roman Empire out of Europe, right? And you know Europe likes to form sort of coalitions that have like toes maybe, but come together, maybe like the foot of the toes. Is that reasonable? Thank you, totally. Is that partially reasonable to anybody? Or do I need to bring everybody else up to totally? Everybody thinks that's totally reasonable. I think it's totally reasonable. And so, um, so the, and the Antichrist comes out of this revived Roman Empire uh, out of Europe when, um, I believe, during what is described as the tribulation period, a seven-year period of, on planet Earth, and uh, for reasons that we won't get into today, but uh, hugely valid reasons, I believe the church, us, Christians today will be raptured immediately prior to uh, that seven-year tribulation period. So that's the encouragement that we take from that. But just keep in mind, this is basically the framework. And so we saw that in in Daniel chapter 2. The rest of Daniel 1 through 6 we described was more the events of Daniel's life. So then Daniel chapter 7 was a vision of four beasts, which was basically the same uh, interpretation as the statue. Daniel chapter 8 was a vision of a ram and a goat. You may or may not have recalled that. And that was specifically the ram was the Medo-Persian Empire and the goat was the Grecian Empire. And uh, there was a little horn that came out of the Grecian Empire, you may recall. And we know that little horn as a guy historically that has happened in the past as Antiochus Epiphanes. Biblically, If you're into biblical history at all, you should know the name of this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes. He is a picture or a type, if you will, of the future Antichrist. Lots of times in Scripture you have sort of a a, a historical figure that sort of points us to a future figure, okay? Um, uh, When Abraham, I've used this example before, when Abraham was told to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar, that's a picture of... God being willing to sacrifice his son Jesus Christ for our, for our benefit. And if you look at that story in Genesis in, in comparison to the gospel message, it's, there's tons of, of really insightful parallel, parallels in all of that. And so for us, the, this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, is a picture or a type of the Antichrist that's yet to come. Again, he'll come, he'll probably be, a, I mean, you know, I said that's a seven-year period. He's going to rise up during that seven-year period, right? So he'll, be, he'll presumably be an adult, right? And so it's not like he's going to be born during the tribulation. He'll be an adult during the tribulation. So he'll be alive prior to the rapture of the church, which causes lots of people to speculate, is he alive now? And you can speculate all you want. That's really beyond our purposes. And uh, frankly, it's probably not a good idea. Why, what do we look for? Do we look for the Antichrist? We look for Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, right? Because the next event, as re- again, I've said this, all these things have happened historically, so we're right here at about the ankles, been there for quite a while, right? But what's the next event prophetically that's going to play out that relates to us? Rapture of the church in the twinkling of an eye. We'll meet him in the air, right? First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians. We're going to meet him in the air. It's going to be a glorious time. So we can look forward to that. But that brings us to Daniel chapter 11, and... 
We're just going to read the first 35 verses of Daniel chapter 11. We're not going to read the whole thing today. What do you think about that? Okay, totally. But before we do that, remember we, 10, 11, and 12 are basically Daniel's last vision. They're a group. Chapter 10, we read last week, was sort of the prelude. Remember, the, the, the messenger came to tell Daniel all this, and the messenger uh, gave us some insight into spiritual warfare uh, related to that. But if you look at chapter 10, verse 14, the messenger said something interesting. He said, now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people. Who are Daniel's people? The Jews. To your people in the what? Latter days. For the vision refers to many days yet to come. And so what we're going to see here, we're going to see a lot of things in chapter 11 that have happened historically. But again, I want to just drive this point home. Daniel has a vision, okay, that we see described in chapter 11 and 12. The, chapter 10 was sort of the intro to the vision. Daniel has a vision of many future events, a lot of which have already happened. So do we read that as prophecy? Yeah, we read it as prophecy, but we also have the luxury of reading it as history. And we can see how exquisitely specific those things line up. Frankly, this is the most... If you want to... Um, uh, what's the word? If you want to be encouraged that old testament biblical history was fulfilled literally as literally as possible i think there's probably no more encouraging chapter in the bible than daniel chapter 11 and so we're going to see that today okay but catch this now if you were a jew remember he says to your people if you were a jew going through some of these events and you could read back and you could say yeah god said all this was going to happen you'd be encouraged even though your times were hard do we have hard times today? Yeah, we do. Were those hard times predicted in the Scripture? Yes, they were. It was told that in the latter days, men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, you know, all of that. They'll have a form of godliness but, not, but deny its power. Does that happen today? Is there a lot of religion that maybe bears the name Christianity, but we're, frankly, that's between them and God, but doesn't look like much of the Scripture to me? Do we see a lot of that? Yeah, we see a ton of that. Is that discouraging? Not if I know that. I mean, it is. Okay, it is a little bit discouraging. But how do I take comfort? Know that God already told me that was going to happen. And so the same thing with Daniel chapter 11. And this is what the Old Testament Jews would have gone through. They would have had that encouragement. But they and us also have the encouragement of, hey, if God was so specifically accurate thus far, chances are pretty good that the rest of it's accurate. Okay, so that's really the, the backdrop. And now, raise your hand if you are a student and you love history. That's what I'm talking about. Wow. You guys are tough. Daniel 11, verse 1. Also, in the, this is the angel, or the messenger now still talking. He said, also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So he's carrying on the message of the end of chapter 10. But basically, he's, gonna, he's now talking in the first year of Darius, which would have been 539 B.C. Uh, he's going he's to be talking. He's going to give a message. And, and now I will tell you the truth. Behold, 
three more kings will arise in Persia. Remember, we're in the, we're in the Medo-Persian Empire now. During the reign of Cyrus the Persian, but Darius the Mede was, was uh, ruling over the region of what's modern-day well, well, modern Babylon and all of that. So Darius the Mede was kind of co-ruling with Cyrus the Persian. So just so you kind of keep those two uh, distinct, but they were the Medo-Persian Empire working together. He said, three more kings are going to arise, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. So guess how many um, uh, kings of the Medo-Persian and became the Persian Empire ruled after Cyrus? How many more? Three more. Okay, so three more kings came after uh, Cyrus. First one was called Cambyses. Next one was Gautama. The next one was Darius the Great, which is different than Darius the Mede. And, um, and then a fourth one that was far richer than them all. You remember the book of Esther? Remember King Xerxes, uh, also referred biblically as Ahasuerus in the book of Esther? Do you remember how rich he was? Right? Like, you know, when he threw a party, it lasted for a year. And the reason it lasted a year is it took that long for him to show off all of his stuff, right? And remember, he's, he was a little, we might call him narcissistic, but we could, there are probably lots of terms we could use. Anyway, he was far richer than the rest of them. And sure enough, that's what happened. Does God answer specifically? Yes, he does. But it gets better. Or it goes on. Then... Verse 3, a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. So sure enough, uh, after the realm of the Medes and Persians, a mighty king shall arise. That's a reference to Alexander the Great. We saw him as... Um, uh, in chapter 8, uh, we talked about in chapter 7 uh, that Alexander the Great is this next king, the great king of Greece. And as you recall the story, um, when he was 33 years old, he got all depressed because there were, no, there were no kingdoms left in the earth for him to conquer. He basically conquered all the known world at that time. So, you know, that's kind of depressing, don't you think? And so he got depressed. And what do you do when you get depressed? You get drunk. What do you do when you get drunk? You stumble and fall and, f and wind up sleeping in the rain, right? And so as the story goes, uh, historically, uh, he probably got drunk, fell asleep in the rain, and developed pneumonia and died at the age of 33. Well, who has a will in the ancient world when you think you're invincible and you're 33 years old? Who's got a succession plan? He didn't, right? So what's going to happen? Uh, the mighty king arose, who ruled with great dominion, do it, did according to his will. But when he is risen, his kingdom got broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven. And so as he was dying, he didn't have any children able to carry on the kingdom. He said, give it to the strong. And they gave, it to his, they gave the kingdom to his four generals, okay? And so um, what's it say here? Uh, it'll be broken up and divided, but not among his posterity, not among his children, but according to his dominion with which he ruled, the kingdom shall be uprooted for others besides these. So he had four regions and uh, led by four generals, okay? Now, the four regions were um, uh, the Seleucid Empire, the uh, uh, Greek 
Empire, and there was another one, Pergamum, and there was another one I forget on the other side here. I don't remember. If I don't remember, do you think I want you to remember? No. Not necessarily. So the reason this map is here is the two players, remember this, this is all about, remember, history, keep in mind, history, biblically, is how does the world relate to the nation of Israel. And remember I said, how does, this how does history relate to me? Because the nation of Israel is the family of the Messiah. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, comes out of the nation of Israel and is hugely relevant for us. He is the only way by which we may be saved, according to the book of Acts. Okay? For there's no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. The name of Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Period. Fair enough? So, we're studying his people. We're studying his nation. And so as it plays out, this Greek empire was divided into four groups. And there's two of them that really play out as the dominant players, and they're the ones that we're talking about in Daniel chapter 11. Fair enough? So the Greeks are down here. Uh, I'm sorry, the Egyptians. Did I say Greeks? The Egyptians are down here, and there were a line of guys called Ptolemy. Now, they were pretty creative with their, you know, they didn't have uh, internet baby names back in those days, right, like we do, right? So Ptolemy one had a child. Guess what his name was? Ptolemy two, Ptolemy two had a child. Ptolemy three. You know, if they were still going, if, 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 thank God the internet did come along because otherwise we'd be up to Ptolemy 5,000 by now. But now that kid is named Bob, Okay. So you got the Egyptians down here, and you got the Seleucid Empire over here, extending over into uh, much of the modern Middle East. But if you notice anything curious about this map, there's an awkward sort of buffer zone right about here. What is that? That's the land of Israel, right? So there's two things playing out here during these wars that we're going to read about. And that is, number one, Israel has a front row seat. It's almost like you could be sitting in the temple, right, in Jerusalem, watching a football game, right? Oh, the Seleucids just scored a touchdown. Oh, no, nope, the Egyptians came and ran along, you know, got a long-distance run. And they're just going to be going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Okay, that's one piece of it. Another piece of it, since I like sort of sports metaphors, can you tell I like sports metaphors? Think of a tug-of-war game, right? And Israel is the rope, Right? So not, they're not just spectators. Sometimes they're spectators, and sometimes they're the rope, right? And you can make a case that the rope is the greatest victim in the game of tug-of-war, okay? So that's kind of how it plays out. I'm going to leave this up just so you can kind of keep it in your head. But you got the Egyptians down here. You got the, uh, we're going to call them the Seleucids up here. And we're going to go back and forth. The scripture, uh, the prophetic scripture talks about the king of the south and the king of the north. And that's where we're going to go in this narrative for the next few verses. Fair enough? Everybody got it? Love and history? Me too. Settle down. Settle down. Verse 5. Also the king of the south, Ptolemy the, anybody guess? First. See, you guys got this. This isn't complicated math. Ptolemy the first. He says, also the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. So Ptolemy the first had this, um, this general 
named uh, Seleucus. And Seleucus kind of uh, got so strong that he, came, he went up here and he was uh, kind of settled into what became later the Seleucid Empire. Okay? And so that's kind of the uh, backdrop of these two warring uh, factions of the nation of, or the, of the remnant of the, of the Greek Empire. Verse 6. Everybody with me so far? All right. Good. Verse 6. And at the end of some years, so we're going to go at the end of some years maybe means maybe a next generation. At the end of some years, they shall join forces. For the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her authority. And neither he nor his authority shall stand. But she shall be given up. And with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. Now, if you read this one way, I'm just going to submit to you. If you read this one way, it makes Shakespeare look like Dr. Seuss, and your eyes just kind of glaze over. Okay? But if you try to kind of capture your head around this and see how this plays out, it's really brilliant. And again, keep in mind, Daniel is writing this somewhere. The events in chapter 11 are happening roughly two to four hundred years after the time of Daniel. So Daniel writes this thing with no historical basis that after some years of Ptolemy and Seleucus, after some years, these north and south kingdoms are going to join forces because it sounds like there's going to be like a, uh, there's going to be an agreement and the daughter of the king of the south is going to be a part of this agreement, but she's not going to retain her power and her authority is not going to stand. And how does that play out? You're thinking, how does it play out? Well, how does it play out? It played out like this. So after some years, now we've got the next generation. We've got Ptolemy II, Philadelphus. They also have a little last name. Most often I'm going to not refer to their last name because that's too much. So Ptolemy II is down here, right? And a guy by the name of Antiochus II, we jump from Seleucid name to Antiochus names. We're going to go through all the Antiochus names here in a minute. So you've got Antiochus II up here, and you've got Ptolemy II down here, and they're going to make an agreement like, most, uh, like often happens in the ancient world, an agreement by marriage. That's reasonable. And so Ptolemy II gives his daughter, her name is Bernice, to um, Antiochus, Antiochus the second. There's a problem. Antiochus the second is married to a woman by the name of Laodice. I told you it sounds like Shakespeare, right? I wasn't kidding. I'm serious. Antiochus too is married to a woman named Laodice from which we get the church of the Laodiceans. Okay. Well, he's all about diplomacy. So he divorces Laodice so he can marry the daughter of Ptolemy's Ptolemy II as, as wife, right? So Ptolemy II's daughter, Bernice, now is the wife of Antiochus II. Everything's going great until Ptolemy II dies of natural causes, okay? And in this chapter, if you die of natural causes, you win, <laughs> okay? And so she, he dies of natural causes. Now, um, you know, I got this wife, Bernice. The only reason I had her was for diplomacy, and you know, bless her heart, I'm getting kind of lonely. For, I'm getting kind of homesick for my first wife, Laodice. I think I'm going to dump Bernice and bring back Laodice. Okay? 
I mean, father-in-law's dead. Who cares? Okay. Well, Laodicea, ladies, would you come back and say, sure, honey. I've been hanging out here waiting for your second father-in-law to die off. Does she do that? No. She poisons him, has Bernice killed, and him and Bernice's son to make sure there's no heir to the throne, right? And she puts her son on the throne. His name is Antiochus III. Everybody good so far? You're going to like our society by the time this chapter's over. So you got, uh, you got Antiochus III now, the, the son of, well, it was, it was Antiochus II and the first wife, Laodicea, right? And Antiochus III, if you, just, if you care about secular history, is also regarded as Antiochus the Great. So there are a lot of Antiochuses, uh, frankly, Antiochus Epiphanes, who we really care about prophetically, wasn't a big player historically uh, in secular history, but Antiochus III, Antiochus the Great, truly was. And so uh, he was kind of a big player. So verse 7, does God write this stuff out specifically, by the way? Very. But a branch of her roots, that is a branch of Bernice's roots, i.e. her brother, shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them, and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. So, uh, now Bernice's brother is pretty tore up over this, and uh, his name is Ptolemy III down here, okay? He goes up and he's a branch of her roots. He takes and he conquers the Seleucids for revenge for the death of his sister, and he takes all the plunder and their gods back here. I like what one guy said, uh, don't you, aren't you glad we worship a God who can't be like carried back and forth uh, across empires, right? And that's sort of lighthearted, but it's very, very true. Our God cannot be captured. Our God is not uh, su subject to our circumstances or our decisions, our God rules the world. Our God prophesied all these events with exquisite detail. And that's what I want us to capture today. That's what our God did. Our God cannot be carried off back to Egypt. And so, uh, verse 9, also the king of the north shall come to the king of the south but he shall return in his own land. So the king of the north, that now this is, um, again, Antiochus III. You know, the brother of Bernice, uh, Ptolemy, goes up there, carries all the gods off uh, and all the plunder. Uh, Antiochus tries to go back and kind of get some, but he's not able to, and he goes back home. Okay, that's verse 9. And verse 10, however... His sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces. One will certainly come and overwhelm and pass through the land pass through, then he shall return to his fortress with great strife. So there's a struggle uh, with, all this, with all the sons, all the, all the prior family. Antio basically, this is Antiochus III. Antiochus the Great is, is risen to power. He's fought off all the, all the other heirs to the throne. So we've got Antiochus III up in the north, and by now we've got Ptolemy uh, III in the south. Ptolemy III dies of natural causes. Again, it's good for him. And Ptolemy IV now succeeds him. So now we've got Ptolemy, the, by, the time, by verse 11, we've got Ptolemy IV here, Antiochus III here. Everybody good? 
If you weren't, you wouldn't admit it. So verse 12. I'm sorry. Verse 11. And the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him. And the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude will be given into the hand of his enemy. And so Ptolemy uh, is, uh, de- is sort of defeated by the king of the south, Ptolemy. He goes up and he's able to defeat uh, Antiochus, but not definitively, like, more like a skirmish. Okay, again, carried out very specifically. And verse 12, when he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times, many shall, arise, uh, shall rise up against the king of the south. Also, violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist, but he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land. The glorious land is a reference to the nation of Israel with destruction in his power. And so bottom line is, again, as I mentioned, if you're in Jerusalem, this looks like a football game. Uh, Bottom line, in these verses, 12 through 16, Antiochus III gathers forces. He's, gathering, he's building a siege mound. He's gra- trying to get help from outsiders, and he makes repeated efforts to uh, conquer uh, Ptolemy IV down here, and he's just not able to do so. So repeated efforts by Antiochus III, Antiochus the Great, to conquer Ptolemy IV, and he's not able to do so, and lots of efforts to do that. So now he's got an idea, right? You try something two or three times, it doesn't work. You try something different. Is that reasonable? Totally. Okay. So, verse 17. So, he shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be for him. So here's Antiochus the Great's plan. He's got a daughter uh, named Cleopatra, not the Cleopatra that's the famous Egyptian Cleopatra. This is a different Cleopatra. But uh, Antiochus the Great has a daughter, Cleopatra, and um, he's going to give her to the son of Ptolemy IV, who's now a child. You might want to guess what his name is? Son of Ptolemy IV? What's his name? Ptolemy V. Yep. So, she's betro- so Cleopatra is betrothed to Ptolemy V. The idea is, hey, sweetheart, why don't you mosey on down to, Gre- to Egypt, wait till this guy grows up, marry him, and then bring back all the, all the political and war secrets back to me, and we'll finally conquer these guys, because I've tried multiple times to conquer them, and I just haven't been able to do it, but this will be our plan. She says, all right, Dad. She goes down to Egypt and marries this guy. Some references say he's a young child. Uh, One said he was 10 years old. Anyway, he's a child. She waits for him to grow up. Anybody want to guess what happens? Again, I said this is like Shakespeare. Anybody want to guess what happens when he grows up? Somebody. They fall in love the plan backfires, right? 
Does it sound like Shakespeare yet? Yeah. yeah. They fall in love. The plan backfires. Here's the point. Now, I mean, that seems kind of funny. It seems like it's Shakespeare. But listen, look at this. Think about this. Written hundreds of years before. All right. So this guy, Antiochus III, he's going to set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright with, with him. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to give him, him the daughter of women for the purpose of destroying it. But she shall not stand with him or be for him. Her loyalty will be to her husband. Is the word of God specific? Have I mentioned this? Please don't lose this. That's the point of today, is that God is very specific, and God knows the number of hairs on your head, and he knows what you're worried about today, and he knows what concerns you today, just as he knew all of this history. Well, verse 18, after this, he shall return. He shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many, but a ruler shall bring a, the reproach against them to an end, and with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. So, by this time, uh, you know, uh, Cleopatra is in love with Ptolemy V, and so that didn't work, and so now he's going to try another way, and he's going to try to move uh, more uh, westward and gain more, uh, more support, more allies that he can then take down and conquer. So this is now sort of, the, if you will, the third different strategy. But as he does this, he meets up with this person uh, in verse 18, but a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. The ruler is none other than the Roman leader by, a man named, by the name of Glabrio. And so, uh, remember we're in the time of the four remnants of the Greek Empire, right? What comes after the Greek Empire? The Roman Empire, right? And so, the Romans now are sort of rising up in the West, right? And Antiochus the Great is looking to the West for extra help, but he gets shut down by the Roman ruler, uh, Glabrio, and uh, a second uh, pushback by a guy named Scipio. Doesn't really matter. But anyway, they force him to retreat. And then verse 19, Then he shall return his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. So history says that he went back uh, to a temple in Elam, which is an area in modern-day Iran, and he went to plunder the temple to try to recover some of his financial losses, and, and he died mysteriously. And so that, that's the end of Antiochus the Great, Antiochus the Third. Verse 20, There shall rise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days, he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. So after Antiochus the uh, fourth, I'm sorry, the third was a guy this time by the name Seleucus the fourth. He reigns. He imposes tons of taxes uh, to try to recover his losses, but uh, he's killed by the jealousy of his brothers. Which brings us to verse 21. Everybody good so far? Feel like you need a cleansing breath, right? Verse 21, look at this. And in his place shall arise, what kind of person? A vile person. A vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. This guy, his name is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Now, you see there where it says they will not give him the honor of royalty? They had a nickname for him. 
Antiochus, well, first of all, his name was Antiochus IV, I said, because they weren't very creative. He gave, his, he added to himself the name Epiphanes, right? Like, I had an epiphany, right? Epiphanes means enlightened one, right? Or like, really, it's a, it's a, it's a title of, of, uh, basically immortality, right? Like, like, you know, these guys all like to name themselves like, a, like I'm God, right? So his name is Antiochus IV, but he calls himself Antiochus Epiphanes. Like, I'm your answer. I'm the enlightened one, right? He is a picture of the yet future Antichrist. When the future Antichrist comes, he's going to say, hey, I'm your enlightened one, right? And so this guy uh, says here, uh, they will not give him the honor of royalty. They had a nickname for him, Antiochus Epimenes, which means madman. So he didn't quite get the honor that he was looking for, but nonetheless, he had enough that he could uh, cause a lot of damage. And so, again, if you recall back in Daniel chapter 8, he was sort of the little horn that was described in, uh, in chapter 8. Notice also it says, he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Everybody we've read about so far has basically conquered either by, you know, intermarriage or trying to give off our daughter or just try to outfight the other side, right? This guy's coming in by intrigue. He's coming in by deception. He's coming in peaceably, okay? There's one one thing that people, I won't say you, because you'll be gone in the rapture, but there's one thing that the remaining people during the time of the tribulation, if they are aware of this, they probably won't be aware of this, but there's one hallmark that they could look for to say that guy's the Antichrist, and that is he's going uh, to be the guy who solves all the world's problems and ushers in peace. No doubt he'll win the Nobel Peace Prize, okay? And that'll be how he comes in. That's how Antiochus Epiphanes came in. He came in peaceably and with intrigue. And verse 22, with the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. So there's lots of initial sort of back and forth uh, campaigning against Egypt. Uh, but in, in 170 B.C., he came in, he, uh, he killed a guy by the name of Onias III, which was the high priest in, uh, in Jerusalem. What does the Bible say about that? He's going to come in and also the prince of the covenant. That's a reference to the high priest uh, of, of Israel at the time. Again, just uh, I don't tell you this just to you know, load you down with names, I tell you this to point out, to emphasize how specific uh, biblical prophecy is to be interpreted and fulfilled literally because it has been so much so far. Verse 23, and after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. Antichrist will also act deceitfully. For he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably, even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them plunder, spoil, and riches. We know that today as bribery. And he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. 
It's exactly what the Antichrist is going to do. This guy used flattery, deceit, bribery, uh, again, by um, uh, specifically against the guy down here by the name, by now is Ptolemy the sixth. Okay. Remember Ptolemy the fifth, the 10 year old kid and Cleopatra, they grew up and fell in love. Guess what they had? A baby. And guess what his name was? Ptolemy the sixth. So that's the guy we're talking about now. Antiochus is trying to, Antiochus Epiphanes is trying to, uh, destroy him. Um, and he's doing it with deceitfulness. He's doing it with uh, diplomacy. Uh, but all of that, and again, all that, uh, historians say part of what he's trying to do is, again, keep peace with this rising threat over here that we call the Roman Empire. Okay? The rising threat from the West. Well, verse 25, He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. So uh, the king of the south, which is Ptolemy VI, he's going to uh, be defeated by Antiochus Epiphanes, mostly because of infighting in his own kingdom. See, those who eat the portion, see that? Those who eat the portion of his delicacies, that's infighting within his own kingdom. Kingdoms, kingdoms die either from outside forces or inside forces or both. That's relevant today. And many shall fall down slain. Verse 27, both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end shall be... Will the end will still be at the appointed times. And so, basically, these guys never really conquer each other. They just sit down at the table, lie to each other, and try to act with deceit and flattery and manipulation and all that. But uh, Antiochus Epiphanes up there in the Seleucid kingdom, he is the master of flattery, deceit, manipulation, and uh, he's using it to his advantage. Verse 28. And so... He's down here speaking lies uh, with Ptolemy VI. And while returning to his land with great riches, he's going back home after they've had some kind of gathering. Uh, while returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the Holy Covenant. Where's the Holy Covenant at? Don't forget now. Temple Jerusalem is right here. Right? He shall be moved against the Holy Covenant. He shall do damage and return to his own land. And so he goes in there. He kind of plunders that. Kind of has a, you ever um, like, a, like a dog? You know, they say if a dog bites its owner, right, or whatever. I'm not, I'm talking way beyond my knowledge base now. But, uh, you know, an animal kind of gets a taste for that, right? Or they say, you know, once a fox comes in and gets your chickens, the fox knows what chicken tastes like, right? It's like it's become, it then becomes ravenous. So we're kind of leading up to this, right? Antiochus Epiphanes, he goes back and he kind of plunders the temple, does some damage to it, right, against the Holy Covenant. Um, and so he kind of does that on his way back north, and now he's, you know, he's back up north. And then verse 29, at the appointed time, he shall return and go back down south. But it'll not be like the former or the latter. I just want to pause for just a second and point out, when is he going to do this? At the what time? At the appointed time. Who's in control? God is totally in control. I mean, frankly, you read these verses and you want to pause and just say, wait a minute, 
God's in control, right? Yes, right. And I think it's no coincidence that he write that that the prophecy adds in there at the appointed time to remind us, hey, I know it sounds like Shakespeare, but God is in control. And if God was in control then, God is in control when? Now. And God will be in control when? Tomorrow. And at the rapture of the church. And during the tribulation. And during the millennial kingdom. And eternally. Right? And so, at the appointed time, don't miss that. At the appointed time, he's going to go back down south. For ships, verses, verse 30, from Cyprus. Cyprus. That's kind of to the west. These are going to be coming in from the what kind of empire, you think? The Roman Empire. Ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be grieved and return this time in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. So, he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So, he gets some resistance here at Cyprus. He goes back. But as he goes back now, he's enraged. He, he actually goes through uh, uh, modern-day Israel. Uh, he is met by ships from Cyprus, the Romans. He meets up with a guy by the name of Gaius Populus Lanius. Uh, again, this is in, his, in secular history. He's a Roman general who totally humbled him. As the story goes, he says, you go back home or else. And he says, let me think about it. And as history goes, the, the Roman general draws a circle around his, around his feet in the ground. And he's like, you take all the time you want, but I need your answer before you leave that circle. And he says, uh, okay, I guess I'm going home, right? So he goes back home, but he's humbled now. What do evil people do when they're humbled? They look for a scapegoat. They look for a scapegoat. And so he's now grieved, and now he's enraged. And notice who he joins forces with on his way back home. He shall return, verse 30, and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. He joins forces with the, uh, the apostate Jewish people, the Jews that happen to be living here but don't care about God. That should give some warning to us right? The enemies of God love to have allies on the inside. Jews that have no regard for God were Antiochus Epiphanes' allies. Verse 31, and forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. And so, very famous now, uh, by this time he's so enraged, he's been humbled by the Romans, he goes into the temple in Jerusalem. He goes into the Holy of Holies, which was, in the Jewish, in the Jewish religion, was the place that, that personified the very presence of God. He goes in there, he desecrates it, desecrates it, he puts up an altar to Zeus, and he sacrifices a pig on it. What could be more blasphemous to the Jewish people than that? Nothing that I can think of. Nothing that he could think of. Right? And so that is uh, referred to as the abomination of desolation. At that time, uh, he uh, makes a mockery of God and he basically uh, outlaws any 
Jewish religious practice in the nation. But notice this, verse 32, second part there. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Can I, can I get you with this? There's always a remnant of faithful God followers. There's always a remnant of faithful God followers. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame and captivity and plundering. Now when they, fa- when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. And some of those who of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. So all that, what's the, these, these uh, people who know their God, they carry out great exploits. Uh, some of them will fall for the... Uh, to be refined and purified and to make them white until the time of the end. This, was, this is really a reference to the Maccabean revolt. As you recall, we've read about this in, uh, I believe it was chapter 8, uh, when, the, when, when he came in and set up the abomination of desolation, put up the altar to Zeus, sacrificed a pig on it, stopped all the, the worship, uh, the Jewish worship. There was a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus who was a priest. Not a general, not a warrior, but a priest you got to like this. Was he trained for war? We don't know, not necessarily. He was probably trained in the priesthood, right? And he gets a, he gets a group of priests, and they lead what was, what's known historically as the Maccabean Revolt. And again, according to chapter 8, verse 14, this went on for 2,300 days until finally temple worship was restored. We se- the Jews he- celebrated today as Hanukkah because it was uh, in that time of year when all this happened. Uh, it was a miraculous time. It was a miraculous um, uh, recovery for the nation of Israel, for God's people, for God's faithful remnant to stand up in the face of evil. And again, that's a reference to what will happen uh, to those that are saved during the tribulation. Again, everybody that's saved before the tribulation is going to be raptured, but those will stay saved during the tribulation. There will be... Uh, a lot of conflict with the Antichrist. And so, um, notice also now, and we'll stop in verse 35, to which some of you say, thank God. Uh, but this will be until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. So, we get a bit of a clue here that, that the prophet is not just talking about that historic event, that's going to happen a few hundred years after his writing, but also it's pointing to the time of the end, which leads into verse 36, which is actually a reference from the Antichrist onward. And so we'll read about, that'd be a good probably place to stop there and to read the rest of it uh, next week. And so we'll read the rest of chapter 11 and, and chapter 12, which is shorter, next week. God is the author of all history. But imagine this. Imagine, okay, we're talking two to four hundred years, right, before these events happened. Imagine if George Washington or maybe one of the pilgrims or Captain John Smith or somebody sat down and, and started writing. And they said, you know, I believe there's a, uh, uh, God told me to write, write this down. And they said, you know, there's going to be a civil war in America uh, in the middle part of the 1800s. You'd say, wow. Right? Would you say, well, I'd say, well, and then, you know, you know, there's going to be a World War I and a World War II. And let's say they kind of, you know, 
you kind of wrote that down. You'd say, wow, right? And let's say they say, you know, let's, then he'd say, you know, and in the 70s, there's going to be a peanut farmer from Georgia who's a real nice guy. He's going to come up, but there's going to be an energy crisis worldwide. You'd say, wow. Then they'd say, after that, there's going to be a movie star who's going to kind of bring in an end to the Cold War with Rosh. You'd say, wow, right? And as it gets more and more specific, you'd say more and more, wow, right? And that's really what's going on. And if you're living in that time, let's say George Washington or, you know, John Smith or whoever, let's say they wrote, you know, some particulars about our modern-day political leaders, which I won't even speculate what they would have said. But what if they had said something like that and we were living in it? We would do two things. We would say, this is hard, but God is in control. That'd be the first thing we'd say. And the second thing we'd say is, I want to read on and see what else he said about what's yet to come. See, prophecy shouldn't be scary to us. Some people are a little bit weirded out by prophecy. Prophecy should be incredibly encouraging in that it validates the reality and the, the specificity and the detail of our God that we worship. And that matters. God wants to encourage us. God told the Thessalonians through the, through the words of Paul, Therefore, when he's talking about prophecy, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Jesus is coming back soon, very specifically. And, and yet, and even as I say that, there are a lot of very specific things uh, that are, you know, lined up now that could happen any time. Does that mean it'll happen tomorrow? Maybe, maybe not. It could. I like uh, Nate. If you're here on Wednesday night, you know Nate's pretty fired up about this stuff, right? And he was, you know, we're talking. He said, you know, he said Ezekiel 38 and 39 talks about uh, Russia and some radical Muslim nations coming against the nation of Israel. And, you know, different prophecy teachers aren't real sure where, when that happens, but it probably happens maybe sometime around the rapture of the church. And we've said all along that the Antichrist is going to be uh, a peacemaker and there's going to be a rise of globalism, which means basically everybody gets along and does the same thing. Can you picture our world today, uh, everybody getting along and saying, sure, whatever you guys say. Can, can anybody picture that? What if Christians were gone, radical Muslims are gone, Ezekiel 38, and Russia's gone? Can you picture globalism? Can you picture a world peacemaker that comes into the Jewish people, said, hey, man, I'm going to make a covenant with you guys. We're going to rebuild your temple, reestablish your, uh, your, your temple worship, right? Are these things plausible? You bet they are. And so has there been specific detail thus far? Yeah. Is there specific detail yet future? Yeah. Does that mean it's going to happen tomorrow? Maybe, maybe not. But the point is, it is specific. And it is plausible. There's a reference in Revelation that, you know, when the, um, the two witnesses are killed, the whole world's going to be able to see it. Well, up until the age of the Internet, you'd think, how can that be? Guess what? Can the whole world see it now? Totally. 
All these things are totally, totally very specific, very predicted, and we should therefore comfort one another with these words. God loves you. God loves you enough to give you the specific instructions, the warnings, the history, all the good, bad, and the ugly of history. He is willing to lay it out for us. He's laid it out multiple times. He's laid it out with incredible specificity and detail so we can take comfort in that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. A lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, Lord. We thank you that you are so in control and yet you're in such loving control. You're not in control to harm us or to um, do anything other than to express your love. And Lord, we thank you that you've ultimately expressed your love through your son, Jesus Christ, who died for us. We thank you for your spirit who you've given us to empower us to live this life according to your word. We thank you for your word that's so detailed. Lord, thank you that you give us all that we need for life and godliness, as you said through the mouth of Peter. So that we ask that we would anchor these things into our hearts that we would live lives of thankfulness to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, everybody. Have an awesome, awesome week. And uh, prayer at 6 o'clock tonight.